Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take us with you, no matter where you are, whether it's the mountaintop or the depths of the sea. As long as we're with you, it's all okay. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after St. Paul's epistle lesson, I begin the sermon with a caveat. When I am preaching about grace and love and peace and calling and hope and eternity in heaven, well, I'm talking about and to believers, not intentionally excluding people outside the church, but those who have excluded themselves through disbelief or those who are still trying to sort things out probably won't get it. As, as Paul said, there's a veil. There is more than a bit of mystery to this whole Jesus thing. On occasions when someone attacks the church, and I happen to be the most opportune or closest target, they list all the things that the church does or believes that really bother them. And I ask a simple question. Why does it bother you? I was on an airplane. The man next to me found out I was a Lutheran pastor, and he couldn't wait to tell me how once upon a time he had gone to a Lutheran church and they wouldn't let him take communion. And he had been angry ever since. I asked, why did it bother you? He answered, because they wouldn't let me take communion. I said, well, so you agree with all their theology? He says, no, not in a million years. I said, weren't you thinking of becoming a member of the church? He says, never. Well, if you didn't agree with them, didn't want to be part of their community, why did you want to take communion with them? He couldn't answer that. He, he had to think more on it. There is and always has been a need to belong, to be noticed, to be accepted, even by people, by the way, that we don't agree with. Once upon a time, the majority of Western civilization was born and raised in the church. Now, whether they actually believed or not, a whole different thing, but they were raised in the church and they understood churchy things. Now, everyone has a prodigal son or daughter streak. We all go through it. And during those years, because we were raised in the church, we all knew that when we went out to feed pigs or live on the wild side, we could always come home. Now, maybe the pastor wouldn't run down the road uh, holding up his robes and stoles, but, but God would be there to greet us, and that's all that really mattered. Beginning in the 60s, more and more individuals were not raised in the church and therefore do not understand churchy things. Theology came from a TV, movies, and books. Religion became more like a spiritual cafeteria with all sorts of options. They push their tray down the railing and ask for, I'll take a sprinkling baptism. Oh, um, let's have happy sermons. Um, no hell. And by the way, uh, can, can you really go light on that whole giving and offering thing? But the person behind them, as they're pushing their tray, they choose immersion baptism, fire and brimstone sermons, hell and tithing. Churches became known more for their stance on social issues rather than their theology. And a pretty deep confusion as to the purpose and definition of the church was created. The decades lapsed. The definition and purpose of the church eroded further, with especially the introduction of not-biblical teachings and practices within the church. Nothing new. It's happened since Jesus was around. The spiritual cafeteria offered more choices from an ever-expanding list of theologies that have nothing to do with God or the Bible or traditional Christianity. And so when someone today wants to talk about God and the church, there is a need to clarify which God and which church do you want to talk about. Um, and then from there, we have to clarify whether their questions are arguments for the sake of arguments. In other words, they just don't like the church or don't like God or don't like Jesus. 
or whether there is a deep spiritual hunger that they're trying to answer. And, and, and they really need to talk about this because it's the only way that they're going to figure it out. And by God's grace, they've led them to us. So back to the opening caveat, when I said the vast majority of the time when I'm preaching, especially when I'm talking about grace, love, peace, and a calling, and heaven and eternity, I am talking about and to believers, not because I want to exclude people outside the church, but rather a lot of them wouldn't understand what we're talking about. Now, the caveat, though, is that I'm always searching and hoping to find a way to include them in the conversation, which is not easy, but is very, very necessary. His face shone like the sun, St. Matthew says, and his garments became white as light. Moses and Elijah showed up. There was a bright cloud highlighting him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son. You need to listen to him. St. Matthew noted the disciples fell on their faces and were filled with awe. As amazing as the transfiguration is, it can't actually be understood apart from what happened just a week earlier when Jesus asked the disciples, So who do the people say that I am? Eleven of the disciples said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Peter jumped up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he added like a million exclamation points. So, a short trip down a rabbit hole. If Jesus is the Christ, which is the Hebrew word for the anointed one, which the Greeks translate as Messiah, he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And this is what Isaiah the prophet wrote. Um, he says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He, he was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and it is by his wounds that we are healed. The Messiah, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, was a suffering and a dying servant. This is not theology of glory. This is a theology of the cross. While Peter is taking a bow and getting clapped on the back for his very bold statement, Jesus says, you're right, that is who I am, and I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, but on the third day rise again. Now, by the way, this is perfectly in line with not only Isaiah 53, but Psalm 22 and a whole bunch of other Old Testament prophecies that are pointing to Jesus. Now, Peter, never sensing when to shut up, challenges Jesus and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I'm sure that he put a smile on his face and looked to the other apostles for approval. That's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Ouch. Six days go by. Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to lace up their sandals to go for a walk. Peter was probably trying to figure out if Jesus was still mad at them. Uh, James and John had a little smirk on their face because, after all, in just a few weeks, they're going to ask Jesus if they can sit at his right and his left in heaven. And if Peter's out of the way, it really improves their chances. At that moment, regardless of anything that they had said or experienced, Jesus was still a bit of a mystery to them. They had walked a thousand miles with him. They had seen him when he was hungry, tired, sore, and sad. They were there when the religious leaders threatened him and the crowds tried to make him king and when quite a few of his disciples left the ministry because his teachings were just too hard. They knew his mom and his brothers. There was no denying he had done some amazing things. But still, who was he? 
Peter wasn't the only one who had a different idea for the kingdom of God. Uh, the disciples kept asking, so are you going to restore the kingdom of God today? And Jesus, as he healed the sick and cast out demons and loved the unlovable and forgave sinners, responded, well, the kingdom of God is here. And the disciples just kept looking around because they couldn't see it. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, specifically the part, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what do you mean by it? What, what, what are you actually praying? You see, are you really ready for all of it to be done on earth right now, the way that it is in heaven right now? Because we are sinners and saints simultaneously, we are not ready for the heavenly holy. When we compare ice cream and a sunny day at the beach and a peaceful night to heaven, when we think our worst day at work is hell, if we still cannot see those around us as those for whom Jesus died, let's face it, we're not quite ready for heaven. And that's okay because that's why Jesus came to save us. He will keep working in and through us until that day he finishes work when we arrive in heaven, not before. But something we need to figure out is Jesus did not die to make this world heaven. He died so that when we leave this world, we get to go to heaven. So how long have you been a believer? Start at your baptism if you were baptized when you were a little baby. And if it was a few years later, then start at the day when things began to gel and you actually began to address your prayers to Jesus rather than just some universal consciousness. How long does it take to understand Jesus and the church and the ministry and our calling in heaven and hell and all the other things? By the way, I don't mean how we feel or what we think about heaven and hell and God and Jesus and all the rest of those things. I, I'm actually talking about what the prophets and apostles taught in the scriptures, which in John 17, 17 is where Jesus says that's the truth. You know, the 14th chapter of John is Jesus' Aloha Ahui Ho dinner. The Passover meal, the washing of the disciples' feet, a final night of teaching before the crucifixion. The disciples are getting antsy. They know that something is going to take place, and no matter how much Jesus has told them, they're still not quite getting it. They keep pushing Jesus for more information. Finally, Philip says, show us the Father and that'll be enough. If you show us the Father, then we'll believe everything you said. Jesus turns and says, you know, have I been among you all this time and you still don't know me? And before, by the way, we start to laugh at Philip, how well do we know Jesus? I noted just before the transfiguration, Peter lost sight of Jesus and got him confused with a comic book hero instead of the suffering servant and savior. You would think after seeing Jesus glow and Moses and Elijah show up, Peter, James, and John would be ready to fully embrace Jesus as the Son of God and set out to fearlessly do the whole ministry thing that Jesus had commissioned them for just a little earlier in the gospel. He told them to heal the sick, cast out demons, forgive sins, restore sight to the blind, and, and so much more. Now that they know who he really is, how could they not go out and be all that they could be for the sake of the gospel? Except the first thing that happens after the transfiguration is a man brings his son to Jesus and says, so your disciples tried to heal him and they couldn't. So I brought him to you hoping that you might be able to do something. Peter, James, and John would rather be up on the mountaintop in all their glory, hanging out with Moses and Elijah instead of this dad showing up and pointing out they, how they still didn't get it. I mean, this is an epic fail for the disciples. And yet, that moment of failure is actually more important than anything that they experienced on the mountaintop. 
I know we all love our mountaintop experiences. I mean, there is nothing better <laughs> than everything lining up, God showing off, and all the flood of emotions and us feeling like, you know, we could just we'll conquer the world. Except that for most of us, those moments are few and far between, no, no matter how hard we try to either create them or duplicate them. And often we wind up falling off the mountaintop and tumbling all the way to the bottom because that's where we wind up living most of our lives. So according to people who know such things, there were between 150 and 300 million people on the earth at the time of Jesus. And we know there were 12 apostles and at least 72 disciples, which means, well, because Jesus only took three people to the top of the mountain, that as many as 299,999,997 didn't get to go to the top of the mountain. They didn't get to meet Moses and Elijah. They didn't get to see the glowy cloud and hear the voice from heaven. And to be fair, um, you couldn't get all those people on the top of the mountain, and they hadn't invented Zoom yet. But, but I want you to think about all the people that got left behind. We need a little help once again from the Greek and the Hebrew. St. Luke says Moses and Elijah showed up on the mountain to talk to Jesus about his departure. And then the word departure is actually a very boring word. If this had been the Hebrew instead of the Greek, the word would have been exodus. And if we remember anything from the Old Testament, it's the book of Exodus, where God swooped in and not only saved his people, but led them all to the promised land. In a few weeks, we will gather on Monday, Thursday, and remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed the night of the Passover meal, which the Jews had celebrated, exactly the same since Moses had celebrated the first one with them well over a thousand years before. Now, the Exodus was a turning point of all of history, a moment where the Jews were re-given hope and restored as God's people. Except there was a price. The Passover meal begins with an innocent lamb being slaughtered and its blood being smeared over the doors. Oh, and also, um, yeah, the meat being served to the Israelites to give them the strength to handle the exodus as they flee from Pharaoh and his army. You see, the people will live, but the lamb will die. The disciples don't understand it yet, but Jesus is, just as John the baptizer said, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. We laugh at their selfish arguments over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God and, and all of their fumbling when they're trying to figure out what the parables mean. And we even gasp when they ask Jesus to call down heaven from uh, heaven fire to consume their enemies. Thomas will never be anything but a doubter, Peter a denier, James and John the sons of thunder, and Mary's never going to outlive her past, and Matthew will well, never be forgiven for working for the IRS. They walked with him, though. They talked with him. They worked with him. How did they not know who he was? How often do we miss God's presence in the very places Jesus said that we would find him? In the bread, in the wine, in the water, in his word, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, and even among the least of these. How often do we let our preconceptions about what God ought to look like and who God should love keep us from walking beside those people because we start to think they aren't as worthy as we are. We have a bad habit of getting so bogged down in our holy quest to know all about God that we miss it when God actually does show up in ordinary things like water and wine and wafers, the sick and the poor, and yeah, even the church. The holy ordinary often eludes us. With this understanding, it's a relief to see how patient Jesus is with his family, with his disciples, his enemies, and even strangers on the street. 
You see, even after they missed out and misunderstood over and over and over again, Jesus kept showing up, offering grace and giving them another chance. And that's why it's okay we didn't get to go up the mountain and why we don't always need to live on the mountaintop. Our Jesus came down from heaven and he came down the mountain to walk with us, to talk with us, to love us, to forgive us and save us even if we don't always know exactly who he is. And so when I'm preaching about grace and love and peace and a calling in heaven and eternity, it turns out that I'm not just talking about and to believers because all of us are still trying to, well, put the whole story together and make sense of it all. And Jesus may get a little exasperated at times, but he won't give up on us. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.